0: Yeah, hold on to your hats. I am fired up about this message. Um, it's kind of been rolling in my head. I, most you know I've been gone a couple weeks, but we got back from the Czech Republic on Monday after a long, long day of travel and uh, airport delays, but we made it back safe and sound, and I think I've started to recover my energy. So I want to hit this passage, and... And to start off, I actually want to talk about something I saw, got to visit in Prague, which is where we did our, our, our work trip. And by the way, we'll, we'll tell more stories next week. A, a, a few things are going to come out today, but uh, we want to get our thoughts together and try to share some, in, you know, things that happened this week and have the whole team up um, talking about it. But so I want to tell you about Bethlehem Chapel. And we got to visit this uh, one of our off days in Prague, and Bethlehem Chapel is a simple kind of building, um, but it's in the heart of the old town. It was built originally. This is kind of they had to remake it because it got over the centuries, you know, torn apart at the, in different ways. But they they there little parts of it were original, but most of it's now rebuilt. But it was, it was first built in 1391 to proclaim the Word of God in the Czech language. So I I know Tom had mentioned with Wycliffe that that they they try to get so that the gospel is in every language. John Wycliffe was doing the same thing in England as they were trying to do with the Bethlehem Chapel. Is if in that day and time, if you went to church, you only heard the message, the Word of God in Latin. And the educated and the upper crust maybe could understand the Bible, you know, being taught, but not the average person. So they had these magnificent church buildings. We, we got to see one of those too. And just incredible, the art and the, the loftiness and the, the gothic style windows and everything. But in those buildings, you would not hear the word of God in a way you could understood. So they set up Bethlehem Chapel um, to, to begin to, to do that. And one of their, it wasn't their first, but one of their early pastors, preachers, was a man named John Huss. And he became very popular. And they, they actually would fill out about 3,000 people could fit, standing room only, in that Bethlehem chapel. And he would, he would pack it out because people were hungry to hear God's Word. And, and John Huss would teach it. He'd just take what it says and teach it. And that made the powers that be very unhappy. Because there are things in this word that the, the priests and the authorities were not living up to. And as long as it was only in Latin, you know, the average people couldn't compare. But John Huss was bringing out these biblical truths, and, and they got more angry, and they, they tried to stop him. They told him to stop preaching. They, they tried to get him out of Prague. Um, And ultimately, So one thing that he he talked about was what's called simony, which is where the way you became a bishop was you paid money and you became the bishop. And then you collected the revenue of the church for yourself. And that's a practice the Bible has. Nothing to do with how the church is supposed to operate. But that was what they were doing at that time, and he would preach against that. And so um, they told him to stop. They called him a heretic Eventually, they summoned him to the Council of Constance, which was in nearby Germany, um, well, the German territories. And, and he was given safe passage. His, his Emperor Sigismund, or King Sigismund, told him he would you know, be safe and be able to present his views. Well, they never even gave him a chance to, to present his views. They immediately arrested him. Um, they, they just ordered him to show up and recant, and he refused. He says, what have I said that's, that it goes against the Scriptures? And um, ultimately, he was sentenced to burn at the stake. When they were ready to e- execute him, he made a statement. He says, you are going to burn a goose. And the, his name, Hus, means goose. So you're going to burn a goose, but in 100 years you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. So in 1415 is when he was um, burned at the stake. A hundred years later, another reformer in Germany rose up, Martin Luther. And they weren't able to, to get him to be burnt at the stake. So the word of God is often resisted by the powers and authorities of this world. They want to be able to say what is true and right and good. And they don't like to have that be challenged. My contention this morning is that the basic message of Revelation 11, using all this elaborate imagery, it comes off with a simple message, is that the powers and authorities within this world will try to squash and, and oppose the message, the simple message of God's word being taught. And so, but in the end, God's word will triumph. That's what Revelation 11 is, is really about. And so I, I hope to show that to you. The basic story, just kind of recapping what happens within it, um, is it starts with the measuring of the temple, and then it talks about the temple being trampled by the nations, And then two witnesses from God come up who have divine power of, you know, holding rain and fire. And the opponents cannot stop their witness. But when their testimony is finished, uh, a beast rises up from the pit that kills these witnesses. And the people of the earth rejoice over what has happened. And then the two witnesses are raised back to life um, and, and taken up into heaven. And then a great earthquake Falls upon the earth that kills many. So, what is this all about? What, how is this connected to the the power of God's word? So, there's an interpretive question that we first kind of have to answer: Is Revelation 11 primarily about events that that have already taken place, or is it primarily about events that will is are yet still yet to take place in the future? So there's two schools of thought. There's the futurist model of interpretation sees this as something that will yet to happen at the time before Jesus' return. And and they talk about literally these, these two witnesses will come back and burn people up with fire and all the things that happen, that that's yet, yet to come because it hasn't happened exactly that way would be their contention. And, you know... So there's the futurist. The the other model is more that that these events have taken place and that they the description is representational. That they're given a, they're representing things uh that have happened. In other words, the two rep- witnesses represent some other thing that has already happened and that the events described are those things that have happened in the lifetime of those who originally received the book of Revelation, that they would have recognized when they first heard the story what it was talking about. It'd be things that they were familiar with. And what, what then Revelation is doing is trying to help them see those events that took place in their world from God's perspective. That God was doing something that they hadn't yet seen. And so Revelation is revealing what what actually was happening in those events. I, I take that second view. That this would have meant something to the original recipients. And I want to try to unpack this and help you see how they may have seen it when they first got this. And to do that, we want to first kind of start by going through the elements of the story and show what each of them represent and I think the first one is that we'll do is the two witnesses so one reason why this is attached to the series on Elijah is you might recognize what some of these witnesses do one of them can withhold rain from the earth and call fire down from heaven does that sound familiar at all from the last few months, right? That was Elijah's thing. He, he said, it will not rain upon the earth until God says so. And the, uh, the other thing is he called down fire twice. Once when he called down fire upon the offering um, on Mount Carmel. And then the other time when they sent soldiers to arrest him, Elijah called down fire to, to burn up these soldiers. So, so that seems to be Elijah. Well, the other one is also kind of someone you might recognize. Someone who could send plagues... And also, like, um, turn the river water to blood. Anyone we know? Who, who, does that, who do you think that fits? Moses. So Moses and Elijah, it's clearly talking about them. And what I would contend, especially when you have Moses and Elijah together, it's actually a double layer of representation. It now, they now represent the law and the prophets a few weeks back. Moses and Elijah, um, the, the message a few weeks back, we talked about how Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus up on the, the mount when Jesus was transfigured. So I don't want to go whole into that, but, but I argued then that they were representing the law and the prophets. Moses, the law came through Moses, and Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Well, when Jesus said the law and the prophets, he meant the entire Old Testament that we know it. And so what I would suggest is the two witnesses represent the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures that they had up until that point. So that, I don't want to get locked into too much. So that, that's one element of the story. Then the other one, they kind of tell you, make it pretty easy. It says the city symbolically called Sodom or Egypt. So here they tell you it's using symbolism, right? It's, it's giving a symbolic representation, and it's actually Jerusalem, because it says where their Lord was crucified. So they make that one easy. The third one, the beast that rises from the pit, the abyss. Later in Revelation, verses 17-9, it talks about a woman riding this beast, and it says it sits upon seven hills. Famously, Rome was known as, as the city of the seven hills, the seven hills of Rome. The the original readers would not have had any mystery as to what the beast was. So the woman is the city of Rome. The beast is the Roman Empire. So the city sits upon this whole empire of, of things. Uh, we, when we took a tour of Prague, um, the Prague Castle, uh, I learned something new that the, the director, or the woman, the guide, she, she said, uh, Prague also has seven hills and Prague at one point wanted to be kind of considered the new Rome it, it didn't quite take but they, they took a shot at it and uh, so anyway so, so the, the beast is the Roman Empire the next element the temple being trampled for 42 months what is that about? well the temple in some ways represents itself but also the temple represented the Jewish people as a whole so the Jewish people and the, the, the Jewish rebellion that lasted from 66 AD to 70 when Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed, that is three and a half years. That's 42 months. So it's talking about the Jewish rebellion against Rome, this little war between the Jews and the Romans. And then the killing of the two witnesses was the taking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And then the rejoicing of those who dwell on earth. So that happened after the two witnesses, after Jerusalem is destroyed. What happened? Well, the general, Titus, was given a triumph. That's um, a technical word in Latin, in, in Rome, where he was allowed to march his prisoners through the Roman form and they erected an arch to commemorate this this great victory over the Jews and the destruction of the temple. Do we have the picture up there? So this is a, an arch that's in the Roman temple, it's, or Roman form it stands today. It's the Arch of Titus. And if you look close, might be a little hard to see, but you could see the, the prisoners are carrying a menorah. Right? The Jews are being marched in the triumph. So they celebrated their victory over the Jews. So those are the elements of, of, of Revelation 11. You can sort of see where I'm going with my interpretation of it, but I want, I want you to see it within the larger context of the story that's going through. It's, it's a part of an unfolding story. So I want to back up and now go to Revelation 6. Hope I'm not losing y'all. I know it's a lot of, this is a lot of work, but I think it's worth it once we kind of get to where, where this ends up. So in Revelation 6, um, Let me get my notes. Revelation 6, what's unveiled is the seal with seven scrolls. And Jesus, because he is the Savior who gave his life, is the only one who's actually empowered to open the seven-sealed scroll. And the scroll represents God's plan of salvation going forth into the world. It's God's plan to bring the kingdom to earth and bring salvation to people. And Jesus alone was was able to open the scroll and fulfill God's salvation plan. Um, So that's Revelation 6. Then Revelation 7, you see the plan starting to unfold. You see an ever-growing number of people beginning to worship Jesus. They're, they're in white robes and they're holding palms of victory. And it says people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue surround and sing salvation belongs to our God, to, to God and to the lamb. And it's, it's one of the songs that we sing in Revelation. Uh, Revelation song kind of fits different parts of this. And so what you see is Ever growing number of people who are entering into the salvation relationship with God. Um, then Revelation 8 switches gears, and you have the, the seventh opening of the seventh seal leads to the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets represent the battle to bring God's kingdom to earth. Right? It's going to be there's It's going to be a battle. It's almost a spiritual battle. And it's, it's one of the most extravagant chapters and I'm not going to get into the details, but, but you just see this language of, of the all parts of the world The you know, it's like the trumpet signals the soldiers to go attack this part. And after six of the trumpets have been sounded though, it's not working because in Revelation 9, you see that the hearts of mankind are actually being hardened to God, rather than opened up to God. In Revelation 9, 20, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, or give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent. So so in the story, it's like the, it's like the this this battle of the kingdom is actually hardening people's hearts. So what will God do? Revelation ten, you have the little scroll. God introduces something new, and a, a mighty angel comes. And his feet straddling the the oceans. And he has this little scroll and he gives it to John who's seeing the whole vision of Revelation. And John is commanded to eat the little scroll. And so what the little scroll represents is a a sub-plan within God's larger plan to bring salvation to earth. And when John eats the scroll as he's commanded, it says it's sweet to the taste. But it turns his stomach bitter. It's a message that fulfills the salvation plan, but has a hard thing that comes with it. That's all the lead up to our passage that Jason read from Revelation 11. Um, let me just say, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it it was sweet as honey in my mouth but when I had eaten it my stomach was made bitter and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings so then he begins to talk about the temple and the two witnesses and so here we see and my contention is this Revelation 11 is about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D which is a momentous event, and it's seeking to answer the question, how could that destruction be part of God's divine plan? How could God allow his, his holy temple? You know, why didn't God just destroy the temples of the Romans and the, you know, the temples of Jupiter and, and all Mars and all, all those other gods? Why is he allowing his temple that represented him and What Revelation is showing is this is part of God's, the little scroll. This plan that actually will lead to the salvation message going forth. And so you have the measuring of the temple. The temple represents um, the Jewish people as well as the temple itself. It, It was the location of, of where, in a sense, where God's word was, was centralized. Over the centuries, God had protected his people. And so you have these two witnesses. What are the two witnesses? It was God's word. The law and the prophets being proclaimed. And the temple was the locus, right? The central point that that people could see this. And over the centuries, God had protected his people and enabled them to continue despite the opposition of the nations. Um... And and it had gone forth. So you had the, these two witnesses are able to to use these spiritual powers because God had upheld them. But the Roman Empire turned against the Jewish people. Really, the the if you read the politics, the the Jewish zealots brought it on themselves. They kept killing the Romans and attacking them and refused to pay taxes. And it's it's a bit understandable why Rome would get a little peeved at these people and the way they acted. But but as part of God's ultimate plan. And so you had this, this war that looked 42 months and then the Roman empire came in. Ultimately they destroyed the temple. It's a bloody affair and, um, and took over the city, but it was just as Jesus had foretold. When Jesus had said, um, the disciples had entered the temple back in their day. And they said, wow, look at all these, 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 this is amazing. And Jesus says, don't be so impressed. I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. This temple will be destroyed. And so, as I talked about how afterwards they celebrated a triumph in the Roman Forum forum with the Arch of Titus. And so the Romans sort of see this as they won, right? They squashed this thing they have successfully stopped the proclamation of God's word of his, the witness of God's word and they think it's the end but it's not so all of a sudden the two witnesses are brought back what do we have next resurrection in the same way the message of the resurrection of Jesus would be the third witness. It's not just the law and the prophets. Now you have the law, the prophets that under, as the basis for the gospel, the message, and you now you have the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the one who died and was raised again to life. And, and imagine how it looked to the Romans. You know, oh, we, we squashed this, the Jewish people, but then They turn around and, and to their surprise in Roman, all the Roman cities, there are groups of people who are proclaiming the same message, who gather every Sunday and proclaim not just the, the law and the prophets, which they still read those, they still read the scriptures as they, they had them, but now they're also proclaiming a, a, a message about a Jew who had been crucified by Rome, but God raised him back from the dead. Right? They thought they had the victory, but no, it was all part of God's plan in the end. Um, they thought they, they, they could um, keep this, this witness down, but it kept coming back. And ultimately, the, the, the growth of the Christian message would overcome the whole Roman Empire. It would be an earthquake, within the Roman Empire that would change it forever so our passage end with saying talking about the second woe the second woe was the destruction of Jerusalem it was a major event in the, the Roman Empire bigger than 9-11 more people were killed it was sweet to the taste because it ultimately advanced God's kingdom but it but it was bitter the, 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 how that played out. Nevertheless, it was a significant part of the transition from God centering his message, his witness from the Jewish people in Jerusalem to now he's going to center his message into the followers of Jesus who are spread throughout the Roman Empire. Rather than having one temple, now you're going to have individual lampstands Little church congregations showing up in in Rome, and Ephesus, and Thyatira, and Colossae, and Corinth. And all over, you're going to have people bearing witness to the law, the prophets, and the Savior Jesus Christ. God's word cannot be stopped. Um, so hopefully I've helped enlighten you a little bit on to what this all means. But so what? Like, cool story, interesting stuff. So, so what? What does it mean for us? And I've been thinking about that, and um, in some ways it means God's means of bringing the kingdom of God to earth is not through the powers of this world. Oftentimes it's going against Against the powers of this world because the powers of this world want to hold on to their power. And so God's kingdom coming to earth is, oftentimes it happens under the radar. He's not using this, this physical power or even divine power. It's, it's God's word at work in different places. So um, in the, the latest Thor movie, just a small spoiler alert, um, uh, Uh, Zeus shows up, right? And Zeus in the, the movie, what's his weapon of choice? The lightning bolt. And that's this powerful weapon. That's how he, he accomplishes his work on the earth, right? So Jesus, or the Lord, Jesus is now raised up. But what, what, when Revelation depicts him, He he doesn't have this lightning bolt. He has a sword coming out of his mouth which represents God's word. It will be through his word that that God is bringing his kingdom. He's not going to zap his enemies or or blast people with fire from heaven. He's not about smiting the the evildoers. Instead he's about the the witness of the word bearing forth um, through this world. So I have an example of that from this last week. I got to know an amazing young man named Daniel um, from Ukraine. So we went to teach Czech students the English and so that they, as part of a Christian camp, so that they would hear the message. But our role was came as English teachers. And originally we were just going to have Czech kids. Well, they ended up, there's so many Ukrainian refugees in Prague, Prague is one of the main cities that's hosting um, people from Ukraine. That we end up having um, a, two different classes of just Ukrainian kids, and so hard to see the the one the third from the right, Daniel. He's the the adult. He's a young life leader in Ukraine who's now with these same teenagers, or not the same different teenagers because um, everything's turned upside down and, and everyone's life there and and the Czech kids kind of knew English the Ukrainian kids knew very little English that they don't have that as much of that tradition of learning English as they do in the the Czech Republic so Daniel had to translate just about everything and it was a, it was hard duty for him I could tell he was really um, just you know we as teachers had a lot of trouble we we relied on him but I I, we got to talk to him at one point and he talked a little bit about how he's you know here with these kids, but his his dream one day is to to see churches in Ukraine um, kind of do the same thing as John Hust kind of take the message and make it accessible to to people in the Ukraine because he he said that the message sometimes to the church is too highfalutin it's it's, it's over the head of the average person and so Daniel's been working with young life. And um, he, he translated all the messages when we had the speaker named Hanza. Uh, Daniel would take the Ukrainian kids to a different room and translate for them so that they could hear the message of Jesus. But I mean, I get, I get so excited to think about how this is how God's kingdom comes. Right? This is what God is doing in the world. This is his plan. His plan is the witness of the world. You know, you we think, well, why doesn't God do something about the Ukrainian war? This is God's plan for changing everything, is the witness of his word upon the earth. And what I want you to know is you have a part in it. You are part of bearing witness to Jesus in the world. And I, I was thinking about what, You know, how this applied, you know, the so what of this. And I was listening to, I I missed four different Sundays the last five weeks. So I kind of was listening to the different preachers. And I realized each one of them hit a point that I, that's about how we bear witness in the world. So way back, if you remember Jeff um, Switz, Jeff, he gave a sermon about how God uses ordinary people who follow Jesus to To reach the world, right he says you know it's, he talked about the ordinary things, the staff and the everything but it, but it 's about ordinary people god god 's not just about you know the extraordinary superhero types. he loves to use ordinary people and I, when I think of the John Huss story is the the hierarchy of the church that they were they were the the ones God was using. The truth is it is ordinary people who who know Jesus. That's God's means of bearing witness in the world. Travis Phillips gave a message, a great message, on how they were rebuilding the temple. By the way, the the destruction of the temple by the Romans wasn't the first time God's temple was destroyed. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians, but it was rebuilt. Uh, But when it was rebuilt, some of the older people who remembered how grand Solomon's temple was, says they wept because this new building wasn't as impressive. And Travis pointed out, they shouldn't be weeping, they should be rejoicing that their grandchildren were still worshiping God, despite all that happened. And what I would suggest is that God's, one of God's means for bearing witness is the regular, consistent, open worship of God's people. You being here this morning, the fact that we gather together and we have a welcoming, friendly, anyone who God would lead can come in and join us. And we try to make this accessible for, to people who, who may know nothing about God yet. But it's the regular, consistent public worship. That's what's the lampstand that God plants in communities. So that's a part of God's plan for how, how we bear witness in the world. Then I listened to, uh, to Willie, uh, uh, Reverend Will Grosso. Um, and, and he talked about how just the practices of discipleship. How, you know, real, he was real simple and direct about how, you know, we got to take this word and incorporate it into our life. And we, we grow in faith through, you know, discipleship and obedience and and um, worship and, and those practices. And I think that part of the witness is, is how God is at work in us. Are you being shaped as you get to know the Lord better? That's one of the, the, the most powerful testimonies is, it's not that we have it all together. It's that God's at work in me. And so are you um, engaging with God's word? Is it changing your life or are you just showing up every Sunday? Right? If it's changing your life, it's going to have power within this world, part of God's witness. And then Will, last week, talked about how Jesus was a friend of sinners. Right? And that's another way that, that we are witnesses. We are, we are... We follow what Jesus did in that we build friendships with people who, who may have no connection to God. At this camp that we did for the Czech kids, many of them, if not most, did not believe in God. Um, Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic countries. But young life leaders had built friendships with these kids so that they were willing to come. And we taught English because that, that was an attraction. Parents want their kids to learn English. And so it's building friendships with people who don't already know, who are, who are outside the church. That's part of God's witness within this world. And what I would suggest is that the, the witness of God's word, as it's at work in our lives, is far more powerful than all the armies and all the political statements, everything out there. This is how God's at work in the world. Friends, think about this. What power, just, just take one aspect, what power does the consistent, public, open, and visible, friendly, and welcoming worship of God's people have within a culture? If there's these planted, these congregations, what power does that have? Not, it's not quick. It's over time. It's under the radar. But how can that itself begin to shape a whole culture when that's taken place? Let's pray that God continues to be at work through us and in us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, we have a chance to worship you, to, to hear your word in, in our own language and let it shape and, and form us. And I pray that the, the, though the powers and authorities of this world will, will oppose your world, that word, that God's word will triumph. Lord, may we see that triumph with our own eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.